Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, you'll be hearing from noted researcher George Barna of the American Culture and Faith Institute recapping some of the trends that he observed leading up to the 2016 election concentrating on Christian voters. Then it's author Haley DeMarco offering some insight into how to respond when life gets overwhelming. Also, he's a well-known Christian musical artist as well as a pastor and now an author. He's Smokey Norfolk, offering some insight into overcoming spiritual barriers. Plus, you'll be hearing from former sports producer Lisa Finn, who discovered two disabled athletes, did a story on them, and formed a long-term relationship with them, a relationship that impacted her own faith. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's Christian artist, the painter Ron DeCiani, someone whose mother came within moments of aborting him. He's crafted a pro-life painting, and it's being used to help save the lives of unborn children. Plus, a constitutional look at the DACA program that has been in the news lately, set to be considered by Congress after President Trump put the program on hold. Jenna Ellis from Colorado Christian University gives some legal insight. Finally, it's Ryan Morrow of the Clarion Project, which generally deals with radical Islam, but who's expressed concern about North Korea, which does have a connection with countries and groups that embrace the Islamist ideology. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. George Barda is the executive director of the American Culture and Faith Institute and offers a look into the mindset of what he calls the sage cons, spiritually active, governance-engaged conservatives. In his latest book, he explores some of the dynamics of the 2016 election, including the influence of this group. The book is entitled The Day Christians Changed America, How Christian Conservatives Put Trump in the White House and Redirected America's Future. Here now is George Barna. You know, I mean, in a lot of ways, as a follower of Christ, I was kind of proud of the Christian community for not just you know, randomly choosing sides, you know, saying, oh, well, I'm with this party, I'm with that party. I mean, there were millions and millions of Christians who really wrestled with the idea of having to vote for one of these two candidates. I I know historically, and it was certainly true in this election, what I've consistently found is that devoted Christians base their votes typically on the character of the candidates. That's the single most important thing that they're looking for. The issues matter, other things matter, but they're looking for character above all else because they know that when push comes to shove, it's the character that helps to lead a person forward. And in this particular race, they didn't like the character of either candidate, so they really had a struggle trying to figure out, what do I do? Do I sit it out? Do I uh, choose a third party or independent candidate, or do I choose one of the two major party candidates? And, of course, ultimately, the vast, vast majority of them chose to vote, and they chose to vote for one of the two major party candidates. In the the case of this group that I've I've called SAGE-CONS, the spiritually active governance-engaged Christians who are deeply devoted Christians, and they're also involved in politics because they believe the Bible tells them to be involved in all aspects of the world where God has placed them. So they said, okay, we need to be informed, we need to make a, a biblically-based decision as best we can, and 93% of them wound up voting for Donald Trump after only 9% of them were supportive of him just a few months after he'd announced his candidacy. There were other candidates that they preferred, those candidates didn't get the nomination, 
ultimately they they win Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, and character wasn't the deciding factor because they thought they're both flawed significantly in terms of character. But when they then looked at the key issues, they said, well, we believe that Mr. Trump may be more likely than Mrs. Clinton to support the kinds of things that we support. But it was it was really interesting watching the Christian community go through all the gyrations of trying to figure out, how do I bring biblical values into this when neither candidate really seems to have the kind of character that honors God? But what happened was, over the course of the campaign, most of the sage cons were supporting other candidates. All of these other evangelical or evangelically inclined candidates, the problem was because there were so many of them running at the same time, they tended to cancel each other out in terms of their votes. And the man left standing was Donald Trump. So by the time we got to April, he was really the the selected candidate. It was clear that he was going to be the Republican nominee. So you went from 9% who had supported him a year earlier up to roughly 71% in April of 2016. Now, he kind of hung in that 71 to 75% range for a couple of months until there was a big meeting that happened in New York City among evangelical leaders. And these were, you know, devoted Christian conservative leaders of ministries, parachurch ministries, churches, businesses, all kinds of leaders who had not made a decision as to who they were going to support in November yet. And so that meeting was a turning point where Mr. Trump came and he met with those thousand leaders, and they had a, a, a couple of hours where they really went back and forth with each other on different issues. James Dobson was asking questions, Tony Perkins was asking questions, Sandy Rodriguez was asking questions. All kinds of big-name Christian leaders were there, and they were quizzing Mr. Trump about the issues that mattered to Christians. And his answers satisfied them to the extent that within four to six weeks after that event, most, if not all, of those leaders from that meeting went back to their constituencies. And those constituencies cumulatively represented about 60 million Christians across the country. Well, these leaders went back and said, based on the exchange that we had with him and and my discernment about whether or not we could trust him on these things, I think you need to take him seriously as a possibility. Do your homework, understand the issues, look carefully at both candidates, but you cannot sit out this election. George Barna here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website culturefaith.com. Haley DeMarco is the author of the book called A Woman Overwhelmed, Finding God in the Messes of Life. In our recent conversation, she discussed some factors that contribute to the feeling of being overwhelmed and how it can be remedied through trusting in the Lord. Here now is Haley DeMarco. Well, the inspiration is simply my own overwhelmed life. I've been overwhelmed by everything. I mean, literally everything. I've been overwhelmed by stress, worry, fear, doubt, love, hate, mess cleanliness. I mean, I've been overwhelmed with everything. And I think, and I know, I know I'm not alone. I've never met another woman who's not at some stage of overwhelmingness in her life. So that's been the inspiration. Well, and 
And when you look at being overwhelmed, let's talk from a practical standpoint. Obviously, there are areas that you can be concerned about. You can pay close attention to some of these things. Where does it cross the line from being just maybe a an area of concern or a specialty or whatever to where it becomes overwhelming? I think that for most of us women, we have an intuitive sense. I mean, we use the expression, I'm just so overwhelmed. We use it a lot because we have that sense of when we've hit that that point. And what really happens is we start to have physical manifestations, just that sense of stress, anxiety, the idea that there is too much to do and not enough time to do it. That's that's the point where we've become overwhelmed because that's really the definition of overwhelmed is having more of something than Mm. you need or want. (laughs) And if you have more to do than you have time, you begin to feel overwhelmed. But those emotional symptoms can range from just the stress and worry to insomnia, to digestive problems, to headaches. We have that kind of reaction in our bodies as women, mainly uh, because we hold it all in and we try to manage it and control it. And so it just starts to wreak havoc with us. And we know at that point that life has become overwhelming. How do you see that a Christian woman can actually manage those tendencies, resist the temptation, and live a life that would be, well, not so overwhelmed? And I don't know what the—what would the opposite of of being overwhelmed be? Well, the opposite would be at peace. Yeah. We would just be content. I think that that there's a lot of good opposites, because overwhelmingness is so many different things. Uh, But ultimately— when, when we look at our lives and we look around and we say, there's so much to do and not enough time to do it. There's so many people not doing what I want them to do. We're looking at life at kind of in the mission of me. I've got a mission. I'm, I'm, I'm heading in direction, and these people got to get out of my way. Um, but when we decide that I don't want to live on the mission of me anymore, I want to live on the mission of God. When we decide that, things start to change. So what's the mission of God? God has a to-do list for all of us. And you know what? His to-do list is a heck of a lot easier than ours. His to-do list has one thing on it, only one thing, God's to-do-through-you list, I call it, and that is to love. That's all he wants us to do is to love. So I encourage women to look at their lives, look at their to-do list, and say, is there something on here that I can't do in love? If I cannot do it in love, then perhaps it should fall off of my list, or I need to learn how to do that in love. So uh, a study that really helps a lot of women is to understand what the fruit of the spirit is, because ultimately that's a good descriptor of what love looks like in our overwhelmed lives. Apparently there were some circumstances in your life that really contribute, uh, contributed to your learning more about moderation. So talk about that if you would. <laughs> I'd like to say that I've really learned a lot about moderation. That's probably the one thing that I need to learn the most about. All my life, I've heard from people, hey, moderation, moderation. But I I tend to figure, you know, go extreme or go home. I mean, I'm all in in every aspect of my life. So yes, I've had those uh, moderation problems. I think that's been the source of most of my overwhelmness. I used to work at Thomas Nelson Publishing and run their uh, teen division. And I was so... um, I was, I was such an extremist in devoting myself to, to serve that brand and to serving uh, my customers and to serving my boss that I actually came to the point where I couldn't stand up straight anymore. I had to walk hunched over because I'd stressed myself into uh, severe back pain. Um, later, once I got married, uh, I was so devoted to being the best wife. I mean, I was the extreme perfect wife, and I put everything into being the perfect woman, that that stressed me out so much I became completely 
unable to move. I'm like, wait a minute, there's so much to do. I don't even know where to start. And I became overwhelmed into inaction. So I could go on and on. I won't bore you all. But perhaps there are some women listening who can relate and say, yes, I tend to give it more than I need to give it. And it's in that that I become overwhelmed. Now, moderation seems to me to be like a waste of time. Like who wants to be like lukewarm? I'm going to be hot. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is that moderation is simply us stepping back, taking ourselves out of the equation and taking into account everyone's situation, everyone's um, needs rather than just our own. Haley DeMarco here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website Haley, H-A-Y-L-E-Y, DeMarco, D-I-M-A-R-C-O, dot com. The Intersection continues now with Smokey Norfolk, Grammy Award-winning artist and founder and senior pastor of Victory Cathedral Worship Center in Illinois. He discussed with me some of the concepts he relates in the book, Take the Lid Off, Trust God, Release the Pressure, and Find the Life He Wants for You. Here now is Smokey Norfolk. The greatest lid, believe it or not, is really imposed by ourselves. Um, I think we are sometimes our own worst enemy in that we are the ones who hold us back through small thinking, through, um, through dynamics such as just not believing in the power of God or not even having a relationship with the source who is God. And so I think that really is something that we have to begin to identify is that, first of all, there is uh, within us the capacity to do more. Philippians 4.13, really, it, it should become our mantra on a daily basis. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. And then once we get out of our own way, I think taking it a step further is recognizing that in God, we do have the capacity and the ability to do absolutely anything, that he is limitless, that he is boundless, that there's nothing that he cannot do and nothing that he cannot accomplish in us. Uh, and so that, to me, is a part of a is, is part of a lid building process. And none of us are born with lids. All of us, we really are given those lids. We're handed those lids, and or we create those lids for ourselves, because none of us are born with that. You know, you can't tell a baby that he can't do anything. You know, that's why the disciplinary process is so challenging at the beginning, because they believe they can fly, <laughs> literally. <laughs> standing up on tables and jumping off of chairs. They have no sense of fear, no sense of anxiety, no no sense of danger even. And so I think as life begins to progress, we create those variables for ourselves and or life hands us those variables, and we adapt to them accordingly. And so, you know, the greatest lids, I think, are the ones that we impose upon ourselves. But then secondly, uh, the, the greatest, you know, creator of lids is our inability to recognize who God is, and who we are in God, and what we're capable of accomplishing through God. That's, that's to me, where it begins. Well, and when we talk about the process of taking the lid off, you have a fourfold plan. I wanted you to cover each of these elements here as we continue with our conversation here. Four plan, four, a fourfold plan, four different elements. The fourfold focus is really, you know, a strategy, and I'm really excited about it because it makes it so simplistic, so approachable and palatable for everyone. That, and, it, and it's also all-encompassing at the same time, so it really covers the gamut. And the fourfold focus very simply is inward, um, and then there's the natural progression. Once inward is done, you'll naturally flow into outward. And then from outward, you have an upward focus. And then lastly, an onward focus. 
And I think each one of them plays upon the other. There, There's no one without the other. And I think even the way that we've organized them really speaks to the succinct nature of how they should be accomplished in our efforts to take our lids off. Mm. So let's talk about that inward focus. Why is that so very important? Well, if, if you're no good to yourself, then you'll definitely be no good to anyone else. Uh, and inward focus is really the one that we, uh, unfortunately, the one that we skip. Uh, and it's it's the one that's the most important. It's the building block, the stairs to, to the next progression. Uh, inward focus is simply receiving the love of God, the forgiveness of God, uh, being healed and made whole internally, dealing with yourself, spending time uh, with God, you know, individually. It's easy for us to hide in the corporate setting. It's easy for us to gather in congregations and pray and assemble with others and or even you know, embrace the safety of others. But really, there's not a lot of people who will spend isolated, private, alone time with God and allow him to do the inward work inside of us. And many of us don't even want to participate in the inward work ourselves because it is work. It will take your your personal effort and endeavor to make the best out of who you are. And I think that is the most important thing if you're going to take the lid off. You have to begin to do the internal work prayer, reading the Word of God, knowing, digesting, and living in the Word of God, but then taking it a step further, uh, allowing God to do His perfect work through the Holy Spirit inside of you. Uh, And then once you do the inward work, there will be a natural progression to the outward, but it has to begin with inward. Smokey Norfolk here on The Intersection. Learn more at his website, Smokey, S-M-O-K-I-E, Norfolk.com. This is the Intersection Podcast with former ESPN producer Lisa Finn. She discussed the long-term relationship she built with two disabled young men whom she had included in a piece for ESPN. From her experiences, she wrote the book Carry On, a story of resilience, redemption, and an unlikely family. From our conversation, this is Lisa Finn. I certainly never um, expected to have a career in in television producing, I I thought when I was in college that I would be a missionary. I had spent a lot of time serving overseas in Russia and Siberia and the outback of Australia, and that was really where my heart was. And I thought, oh, I'll just work for a few years and save up some support money and then head to the mission field. But uh, God obviously had other plans. I never expected to have a ministry in cable sports television, but that's kind of what happened. And I just really realized the power that well-told stories can have in affecting change in people's hearts and in actions. Um, I was a feature producer for much of my time there, telling stories of inspiration against the backdrop of sports. So sports were kind of secondary, and the narratives were always ones of hope, of redemption, of connection, um, that left viewers in vulnerable places where they could really reflect. So if you've watched Sports Center outside the lines and cried, I was probably one of the reasons behind that. Mm. What did you look for as you were looking for stories to tell? Well, we were always looking for something inspirational or aspirational in nature. So a story subject who had gone through something difficult um, that would have universal points of connection and then how they overcame that sports was usually a small part of that Um, but yeah something that people could look at and say oh me too i'm not the only one (laughs) 
I'm not the only one. And they did it, and so I can do it too. I mean, if you're going to really distill distill the purpose of these stories, I think that would be the formula. Well, I mentioned those two young men, Leroy Sutton and D'Artagnan Crockett, and they really formed the basis of this book that you've written called Carry On. So tell me how it is that you first connected with these two young gentlemen. Sure. Uh, Well, I'm from Cleveland originally, which is where my father still lives. And one day he called me and alerted me to a photograph in the Cleveland newspaper. And it was of two high school wrestlers, D'Artagnan, who was legally blind. And riding on his back was Leroy Sutton, who's a double amputee. He lost both of his legs in a train accident when he was 11 years old. And they were about to have the last wrestling match of their high school career that afternoon. And after... 10 years at that point of producing, I thought I had seen everything, but I had never seen an image like this before, and it just really gripped me, and it made me wonder how life brought them together and where they were headed and what could be learned from them, and so I hopped a plane that very day, went to Cleveland and found them, um, and was so compelled by how they interacted with each other, how D'Artagnan carried Leroy around their competitions and their school, how Leroy helped D'Artagnan, because those sort of expressions of affection are just not the norm in teenage urban culture. Um, But that was my first exposure to them, was a photograph in the newspaper, and I just couldn't stop looking at it. How did you see God move in the midst of these friendships? How did Leroy and D'Artagnan actually affect your own personal faith, and how are you able to actually impact them? Hmm. Well, I think for one, they were. Uh, they, I really grew to understand. I think that being poor and and being homeless as they were had less to do with running out of money and everything to do with running out of useful relationships. I know there was at one point early on when Leroy was not willing to open up to me, and his coach said, just give him time. He probably thinks you're just a turkey lady. And I said, a what? And he said, a turkey lady, you know, one of them white people who come into the ghetto every Thanksgiving and drop off Thanksgiving dinner and then go back to their nice suburban houses. And that was, at first it was funny, but then it was also really convicting um, because I thought, gosh, I wonder if I if I have been a turkey lady in the past. And I just came to really understand that um, nobody's going to listen to the gospel. Nobody's going to listen to what I would have to say about God if they can't trust, if they can't love. They're not going to believe in a loving, trusting God if they haven't had that modeled here on earth. And so I really came to understand the, the importance of having a committed, loving, useful relationship um, in situations like that. And I wanted to soothe their pain as God would. Lisa Finn here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the book by going to the website carryonbook.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you could listen to or download full conversations from guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. 
You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, I spoke recently with Christian painter Ron DeCiani of Tapestry Productions. In our conversation, he discussed his involvement with pro-life work, including a pro-life painting he had done, benefiting the Before I Formed You Foundation. From that conversation, this is Ron DeCiani. Jeremiah 1, uh, 5, and 6. Jeremiah was told by God, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. Now, please don't anybody get the idea that I'm on Jeremiah's level. I'm just another person that uh, experienced the same thing Jeremiah did. And uh, in my case, uh, my mom told me for decades as when I was a young child that, you know, she was very honest with me and said that, you know, uh, when she was pregnant with me, uh, her life situation, and, and, and it's not, I don't think, important to go through what was happening in her life at that time, but it was just she was overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, uh, in being overwhelmed, she made the decision to abort the pregnancy. And she told me as she walked down the, uh, the, the street in Chicago, Grand Avenue, uh, she went to her doctors and said, you know, I, I just don't want this baby. And she was not a born-again Christian at the time, but our grandma, my grandmother lived with us, which was her mother, who was a Pentecostal born-again Christian. Uh, as a matter of fact, she couldn't even speak English, but obviously our family spoke Italian as well. And so uh, what happened was she got to that center um, and they informed her that the procedure was going to start with uh, a simple injection. And she sat there and waited, and she said when the needle actually came within an inch of her arm, she said she audibly heard the voice of God say, don't do this, I have a plan for this baby. Wow. Now, she pushed the needle away, changed her mind, walked out, and here I am. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for God speaking to her, and I'm so grateful that she listened. I think if there's mm. anything that um, all of us need to know today is that, you know, sometimes we go down the wrong roads, not because God hasn't spoken to us, but because we just didn't listen, or we just don't like what he's saying. And as much as my mom could have defended her position— she said, you know, I've, I've heard from God and I've got to go this way. And nobody's more grateful than me that she chose that. Well, describe, if you would, this particular painting and the, the inspiration of it. Yeah, well, it came right from Jeremiah 1, 5, and 6, which, you know, when I read that, I said, that, that's me. That's, that's my story. And, you know, I had a lot of uh, pro-life groups calling me even before that and saying, hey, can you do a painting for us? And I said, oh, I'd love to. But it was always a grim painting. Like, let's show an aborted fetus bleeding and with the arms pulled off. And I said, no, 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 I, 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 I wouldn't do that. I don't think anybody would want to look at that. And it was, a, it was a friend of mine, which you probably know, whose name is Ray Comfort, just a great evangelist, uh, he and I have been friends for many years, called me one day and said, okay, if you can't do 
what they're asking you to do, what can you do? And I remember sharing that verse, and we talked through it. And so Ray became the impetus that God used to have me form the idea of the hand of God literally touching a pregnant lady. So we're having a time warp thing going on here where the hand of Christ is touching a pregnant lady. And if you look close enough, a lot of people miss it. If you look close enough, you could see ghosted within the belly of the woman is uh, a baby. And uh, I'm, I'm fully believing that on every, at every time when a woman gets pregnant, that it's God who formed that baby in the belly of the woman. So it's such a sacred event that for us to take it casually enough to say, well, I think I'm just going to get rid of this, uh, it's about as, as bad as you can get. Ron DeCiani here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website tapestryproductions.com. You can learn more about the Foundation's work by going to formedyou.com. Well, the intersection continues now with Jenna Ellis, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Communication at Colorado Christian University, author of the book, The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution, a guide for Christians to understand America's constitutional crisis. In our conversation, she discussed the constitutional issues at play regarding the president's actions and potential congressional legislation on DACA. From that conversation, this is Jenna Ellis. We have to, especially as Christians, understand why the rule of law is important, why our system of law is uh, is in place, and then from there we can discuss, okay, what should we do now? So with my students, I always give them this analogy of uh, it's like a game board. We've all played Monopoly, and Monopoly has a rule book. You have to obey the rules. And then within the context of the rules, you can determine your strategy. Do I want to buy boardwalk or do I want to pass? Do I want to mortgage my property? Do I not? Well, those would be the political questions in the context of the Constitution. And the Constitution is really our rule book for playing our game of government. And so it's really important that everyone who is playing this game of government understands the rule book and they adhere to the rule book. And then within the context of those rules, then we can make our best strategic decisions. And it's important, Bob, to remember that one of the rules of our Constitution, and we find this in the Declaration of Independence, that the only proper role of government, and the founders recognize this from the Judeo-Christian worldview, that the only proper role of government is to preserve and protect the unalienable rights that we as human beings uh, made in the image of God have, and that our rights don't come from government. So when we're dealing with something like DACA, We have to remember, first of all, what the government is obligated to do, and that's to preserve and protect our rights as American citizens first. And then within that context, we can say, okay, what can our government do? Well, in 2012, uh, President Obama issued um, an executive order in the form of a memorandum, which essentially um, created this new law for immigration. Well, according to our rule book of the Constitution, he's not allowed to do that. All legislative authority has to go through Congress. That's Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution. Section 8 specifically says a uniform rule of immigration. So for President Obama to unilaterally create law and tell Congress what to do, he's actually going against the rule book. So what President Trump did on Tuesday was to rescind that and say, this properly belongs to Congress. 
once Congress deliberates about it, now we can determine, determine what do we want to do? Do we want a mortgage boardwalk? Do we want to buy a boardwalk? We can talk about that in Congress, but that is according to our rule book. Well, and let's talk about this original executive action, because we hear quite a bit. I know that during the Obama administration, there was a lot of discussion about executive orders that were issued, some apparently constitutional, others not. What about this DACA order was unconstitutional? Yeah, and so you know, whether or not you agree or not with the substance of it, with uh, what we should do with these so-called dreamers, what our uniform rule of immigration should be, we all can have a variety of opinions on that. But what made it substantively unconstitutional is that President Obama was legislating. He was telling, uh, he was telling Congress essentially, "I'm going to go around you, and I'm going to establish the rule of immigration without you." The executive office is not allowed to legislate. Constitutionally, all laws and the creation of laws are given to Congress, not the executive branch, and definitely not the judicial branch either. So comment on the president's actions, if you would. Sure. And President Trump did precisely the right thing. And whether or not we like it or not, that's what our Constitution says. And so for him to follow our rule of law, we should be happy with that. If we don't like Um, our rules, then we can, through the amendment process provided in Article 5 of the Constitution, we can always change that. But what I find really fascinating is that the liberals have uh, have been saying in the media all the time, oh, well, President Trump just wants to be the dictator of America. He doesn't want to buy by the Constitution. And then when he does something like this that they politically disagree with, even though it is exactly according to the Constitution, then he still can't win. And so really what we're seeing is that people are looking at the political questions and they're wanting the president to take unilateral action when they agree with him politically. And then they don't want him to when they don't agree with him politically. And those are questions that have to go to Congress, rightfully. And so regardless of whether or not, again, if we like DACA, we don't like DACA, we we have a different idea of how we should handle immigration, all of those questions constitutionally belong in Congress. Jenna Ellis here on The Intersection. You can follow her on Twitter by going to Jenna Ellis O-R-G. This is The Intersection podcast with Professor Ryan Morrow, Shulman Fellow and National Security Analyst for the Clarion Project. In our recent conversation, he talked about the activities of North Korea regarding nuclear weapons and its relationships with Iran and Islamic terror. This is Ryan Morrow now. I mean, on the one hand, even ideologically, if you look at what North Korea, the regime, believes in or professes to believe in, um, it, it's, it's similar to jihadist beliefs in, in several ways. Um, but beyond that, there is a more direct connection between the North Korean regime and the jihadist threat that we face. The most direct, blatant connection is between North Korea and Iran where right after the test of the hydrogen bomb, which is 16 times as powerful as the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, you had a giant group of Iranian officials visiting North Korea. Now, North Korea doesn't produce electronics like the iPhone or really anything. The only thing that they sell, particularly to the Iranians, are conventional weapons and unconventional weapons, WND. So what do you think they were talking about with that type of timing? Obviously, they're talking about missile technology, WMD, probably exchanging the nuclear data from their tests. Um, and, and this has been going on for a long time. So I say that we need to consider the Iranian and North Korean WMD programs to be one entity 
and talk about them in the same exact sentence. We also know that North Korea has provided support to Islamic terrorist groups, uh, most importantly Hezbollah, helping them to build tunnels, Hamas, there is evidence that they've supported. And back between 2003 and 2005, they've supported al-Qaeda-linked terrorists in the Philippines. Uh, so when North Korea builds things, they're looking to sell some of what they build. Is there some sort, do you perceive that there may be some sort of agreement here that, you know, North Korea would be kind of out front and and putting up all of these different tests and uh, and attempting to get the Americans engaged in that way to kind of see what works and see what doesn't work? Or, or is that maybe part of the, the strategy as well? I think there is a good cop, bad cop routine that goes on uh, because you do see this contrast where when North Korea acts very rambunctious, you have the Iranians acting more friendly and then you, you see it flip. And, and I've noticed that pattern since 2001, 2002, um, so at this point, I, I think it is coordinated. But uh, the, the big difference here is just that North Korea, once they got the material to build a bomb, they actually put the pieces together and made the bomb, whereas Iran builds the infrastructure so that when they decide to exercise breakout capability, meaning the, the ability to quickly produce a nuclear weapon, all of a sudden we're not talking about them building a bomb. You're talking about them having an arsenal, and they do it too quickly before you can even do anything about it. So they're doing it in a different way. Um, but basically, and the Israeli prime minister, I think, summarized this very well. Uh, you are, over the short term, delaying the day because of the nuclear deal when Iran has a nuclear weapon. But in exchange for that, when the day comes, they have potentially hundreds of nuclear weapons. So that's the trade-off that we've got going right now, and Iran, with just a massive amount of money coming in um, from the U.S. on freezing assets to international business contracts because sanctions have been lifted, that enables Iran to then fund the North Korean program. And so there's a theory out there that I think is substantiated that Iran basically said uh, when they struck the nuclear deal – uh, we're just going to outsource a large portion of our program to North Korea, have North Korea work on the missiles, have North Korea work on some of the technologies that North Korea is currently working on, because why should we do it if North Korea is doing it and we can just get it from them, buy it from them, and we can cash in on the meantime? It's, it's hmm. the most common sense thing that they could do towards developing a nuclear weapon, and we fell right into it. That was Ryan Morrow here on The Intersection. The organization's website is clarionproject.org. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, you can go to meetinghouseonline.info and get connected to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to The Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.